Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. During the First World War, there's a story of a British soldier named Henry Tandy who stumbled upon a 29-year-old wounded German corporal, and in an act of battlefield mercy, Tandy decided to spare this young soldier's life. We found out later that corporal was none other than Adolf Hitler, so... You could say that an act of kindness in World War I resulted in World War II. As they say, no good deed goes unpunished. Think of Richard Jewell. I think there's a couple documentaries made about him now who reported the bomb threat at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics only to become the FBI's primary suspect. Think of Mr. Incredible who stopped a suicidal man from jumping off a building only to be sued for accidentally injuring him in the process. No good deed goes unpunished. I, con- I considered subtitling this morning's message, and this is the thanks I get. Because in all four of the scenes that we're going to be studying together this morning from Acts chapter 16 and 17, that's where we're going to be if you want to open in your Bibles and find that. We will observe together Paul and Silas, these protagonists of the church's second missionary movement, receiving nothing but punishment for all of their good deeds. And while last week, in the previous chapter, we praised God's ability to turn obstacles into opportunities, this morning the theme is just the opposite. We lament just the opposite, the way in which the world wants to take something good and ruin it. The world wants to turn beauty into brokenness. And that's the recurring theme running throughout all four of these stories we're going to read. But lest we get too discouraged along the way this morning, because I would just warn you, if you leave halfway through today, you're going to think, man, that was just a total downer. That was, that was a major bummer. But I promise, my promise to you is if you stick it out till the end, we're going to tie all of this together on a note of hope and redemption. So I invite you to stand with me now uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word as you're able to. Again, we'll be in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, pick up the story where we left off, and we'll go a a full chapter and and wrap up in the middle of chapter 17, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those at the info bar this morning, but I invite you to hear the word of the Lord with me. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them off into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in and attacking them and the magistrates tore off their garments from them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the very prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the very same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was the day... The magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where, it was, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did many, a great many, of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, the missionaries, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Four ways in which the world turns beauty into brokenness. Number one, in Philippi, We see Paul and Silas working for freedom, only to be met with imprisonment by those of the world. It's this dichotomy here, freedom and imprisonment, that we're going to see in four separate contrasts. A quick word about that. Um, I've set up this, this contrast between God and the world. Actually, Jesus set up this contrast. Jesus told us, God works to redeem, to turn evil to good. The world works to ruin, turn good to evil. And according to Jesus, every single person on the planet belongs in one of those two camps, either to God or to the world. You're either a child of God or you're by nature a child of of wrath and of this world. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 19, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. To be a friend of God is to be at enmity, hostility with the world. And that pretty much sums up what we're going to see transpire in all four of these scenes here. God chose Paul and Silas out of the world, adopted them into his own heavenly family. They now belong to the Lord, but because of that, they're going to be hated by those who still belong to the world. And so, when Paul and Silas here work for freedom, the thanks they get from the children of the world is imprisonment. Verse 16, on our way to the place of prayer where they met Lydia last week, Luke goes back in time and recalls, we met this slave girl who had the spirit of divination and who brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So essentially, she's possessed by a demon spirit with the supernatural but spiritually dark power to foretell the future. Now, that may sound surprising at first to those of us of modern, enlightened sensibilities, really, a demon, uh, but it shouldn't. You know, demons are all over the pages of Scripture. You know, some of us uh, have even had personal experiences with them. They exist, and this poor girl is possessed by one. The, the surprising part is in verse 17 is that she followed Paul around, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's surprising. I mean, it's true, but what is the the demon doing? The demon is doing Paul and Silas' job for them. Why? What in the world is going on? Well, I'll offer you two possibilities. The first is that it's possible that the demon had no choice. Uh, This is an involuntary reaction to the overpowering presence of the Holy Spirit within Paul and Silas. After all, when Jesus walked the earth, the demons were constantly, constantly crying out, identifying him rightly and publicly as the Son of God. 
Mark 1, Mark 5, Luke 4. Uh, and time and time again, it's, it's almost like the demons can't help themselves. Jesus would just walk in the room and they'd just start screaming and begging for their lives. Because uh, James 2.19 makes it very clear that demons are orthodox theologians. They knew exactly who Jesus was. And here in Acts 16, they know exactly who Paul and his crew are. They're servants of the Most High God who preach salvation, the truth, the gospel. What makes them demons is that they, they hate Paul for it. They hated Jesus for it. They understand the truth of the gospel. They just hate and oppose it and rail against it. But number two, here's a second possibility. It's also possible this was strategic on the part of the demon. You think about it, these Philippian onlookers, the crowd here, they would have had one of two reactions to this demon. Either they were scared to death and they avoided this poor slave girl at all costs, or by virtue of their own involvement in the idolatrous, wicked, uh, occultic practices of the pagan Roman world, perhaps they were enthralled by the demons. Some of these folks in the crowd were no doubt the ones patronizing, enlisting the services of this demon-possessed girl. But in either case, the demon is being strategic here to acknowledge the gospel because the result is that it's either going to scare people away from Christ too. Like if, if these servants of God have anything to do with this, this demon spirit, then we don't, we're not touching it with a six-foot pole. Or it's going to distort their perception of the gospel into thinking the gospel is some sort of syncretistic supplement to their paganism. Like, hmm, it sounds like we can worship God and indulge in these dark spiritual practices too. Double my otherworldly power. Which makes it truly shocking, maybe the most shocking of all, is the fact that Paul let it go on, verse 18, for many days. This lets this girl keep pestering them. Perhaps he knew what the consequences of the exorcism would be, but in any case, we hear when Paul could stand it no longer, having become greatly annoyed, he cast the demon out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, the only name by which we can be set free. And you just imagine the relief that this young girl must have experienced. The joy. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. But the joy here is short-lived because as soon as, they, as she gets home in verse 19, we hear her owners saw that their hope of gain, of turning a profit at this poor girl's expense, was gone. And so they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and had them beaten within an inch of their lives because it's all fun and games until you hit somebody where it really hurts in the wallet, Right? I've got an African-American pastor friend, Harry Walls, who says, well, there's only one color that really matters in America, and it ain't black or white. It's green. And if I can just make the turn now and suggest some practical application for this point for you and me this morning, I would invite you to consider with me just how much gain, green, the world stands to make from our own imprisonment, yours and mine this morning. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma. If you haven't, you should. The long and short of it is, every social media outlet, every streaming service out there, Facebook, Instagram, Netflix, YouTube, all of them, they have a vested financial industry in keeping you and me enslaved 
to your screen for as long as possible to keep you scrolling, to keep you streaming, so they can keep selling you more ads, so they can keep those monthly subscription payments coming. The average American now spends seven hours and four minutes per day staring at a screen. And Apple's job is to turn that into eight hours and four minutes. $3,075 is spent on internet pornography every second of the day. It is a $100 billion industry worldwide annually, and 64% of Christian men admit to watching porn at least once a month. According to the National Library of Medicine, as, as many as 10% of American teenagers today are diagnosably addicted to video games. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. It pays to enslave people. It pays. But friends, Jesus said, I have come to set the captives free. Jesus is bigger than your addiction. He offers you hope and healing this morning. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Point number two. So Paul and Silas get brutally flogged and thrown into prison where we discover that the world wants to turn integrity into injustice. The world repays right with wrong. In verses 25 through 40 here, we see a second pair of chains fall off. The slave girl had been trapped in spiritual bondage, but now these missionaries find themselves in literal, physical Bonds And like the slave girl, their supernatural deliverance here is just one of several shocking components of this story. The first is their joy. Their joy. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Let me just give you a visual. Here is what it would have looked like to have your feet fastened in the stocks. Totally immobile, uh, sitting in a pool of their own waist, and they couldn't even lay down because their backs were so raw from having been flogged earlier that morning for hours and hours on end. And so what is their response? Hymns of praise, joy, prayers of joy, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. The second shocking tidbit here is that their fellow prisoners, verse 25, were listening to them. Instead of shouting at them to keep it down, it's midnight and we're trying to get some sleep over here. No, Paul and Silas were such a powerful witness to the hope of the gospel. I mean, really, what other hope could have possibly motivated a prisoner in that kind of a situation, bound, bloodied, broken, to sing hymns of joy? And so the others are listening to them. They've got a captive audience in the prison. And not just that, but thirdly, and to me this is the most mind-blowing part of it all, is that when God shakes the earth here, when God loosens their chains and flings their cell doors open, the other prisoners must still be listening to Paul and Silas because I think we have to assume that their natural, immediate reaction would have been to jump up and sprint for the nearest exit. Wouldn't that be your natural reaction here? 
Uh, the jailer certainly assumed as much when he wakes up in verse 27 and saw all the doors open, was ready to kill himself rather than face imminent public shameful execution for his dereliction of duty. Speaking of relief and joy, can you imagine how he must have felt, the jailer, when he hears those words in verse 28 from Paul, don't harm yourself for we are all still here. He doesn't believe it. He goes and gets the lights, brings it in, counts the prisoners in their cells. Sure enough, it's a miracle. That's, that's as miraculous as anything. It makes me wonder if perhaps they'd all gotten saved earlier that evening. All personally trusted in Paul's Jesus that he preached. Because I don't know how else you explain this kind of radical obedience. God himself must have told them to stay put for the jailer's sake. And so in verse 29... The jailer falls down at their feet and he asks the most important question that any of us can ask, that all of us must ask and reckon with at some point in our lives. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We all know deep down that there's something wrong with the world we live in, don't we? More than that, Romans 2 says that God has given each of us a conscience such that we all know that there's something deep down wrong with us personally that we're sinful, that we're imperfect. And the question then becomes, how does it get fixed? What must we do to be saved from the sin all around us in this world, from the sin within us? Of course, the world offers its own answers, human progress. We are the answer to all of the world's problems, somehow, inexplicably, despite having caused them. Technology, education, become an ally. You know, if you just vote the right way, stand up for the right things, stand up against the wrong things, prove how virtuous you are, then you will somehow be saved. But Paul and Silas and God's word offer us such a different, such a better answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is by Christ's grace alone, his finished work on the cross in your place to pay for your sins that you can now be saved through faith alone paul says believe pistuo trust in jesus surrender your heart to him in faith and your life will be saved brothers and sisters we need to keep the gospel simple for unbelievers it really is so simple you, you, you don't need a seminary degree. It's easy enough for a child to grasp the gospel. Jesus said, if you don't have faith like a child, you'll never see his kingdom. You don't have to be some great theologian to grasp the gospel, that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, and that Christ's sacrificial death on the cross in your place is sufficient. That's it. That's the gospel. So easy a caveman can do it, right? The old commercials. And you also don't have to be an extraordinary evangelist to then share that good news with others. You just memorize Acts 16.31 here. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. And then you pray for opportunities to do it, to share it. It is good news for you, for me, for this jailer, 
for his entire household. Paul witnesses to them in verse 32 as well. And they also believe and they're saved. They get baptized. And then they all celebrate together around the early morning breakfast table. But watch how the magistrates are going to respond in verse 35. They try and quietly dismiss Paul and Silas without so much as a legal justification for their imprisonment in the first place. Much less a thank you. After all, it was Paul and Silas's integrity, their undue obedience to the civil authorities over them, these unjust authorities, as Paul would later write in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, even when they're, they're unjust, obey them, submit to them. It was his integrity here, Paul's, that prevented a wholesale prison break and therefore spared, saved this jailer's life, both physically and spiritually. And what is the, thank, the thanks he gets? He should have received a key to the city. Instead, he gets asked to leave and never come back. But before doing so, Paul says, Nuh-uh, we're not just going to go quietly into the night here. We're Roman citizens. We have rights here. We have due process. Why? Why is Paul pushing back? Is he just rubbing their noses in their injustice? I don't think so. I think his concern here is for the ongoing safety of the newly birthed Philippian church that he's leaving behind for its reputation with these authorities going forward. Tony Morita explains, by showing that he and Silas had done nothing wrong and that Christianity was no threat to the Roman way of life, Paul helped protect the church from future harassment. Once again, Paul's actions shout of his love for the church. And speaking of love, Paul visits the church one last time. This hodgepodge group of infant believers, Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, the prisoners. you got a wealthy Asian businesswoman, a poor Greek slave, and a middle-class Roman officer. Quite the eclectic home Bible study. Paul encourages them one last time in the Lord before departing in verse 40. There's so much here, but what's the application for you and me this morning? I think we have to realize that we live, especially this week, especially this week, that we live in an upside-down world where evil is called good, and therefore good gets punished with evil. The reward for integrity all too often really is injustice. Did you know that John Piper has a criminal record? One of the most honorable, upstanding men that I know of actually spent a night in jail back in the 80s for peacefully sitting in front of an abortion clinic and trying to stop mothers from killing their babies. Because Proverbs 24.11 commands us to rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. But until this past Friday, that was illegal. Not only was it legal to kill your baby, it was illegal to try and stop that murder. But brothers and sisters, morality is not democratic. The Supreme Court didn't strike down the legality of abortion this past Friday. God did that on day six of creation when he said, let us make humanity, all humans, big and small, in our image. And so you're going to hear a lot of poll numbers being thrown around in the weeks to come. 60% of Americans support legal abortions in some cases. 70% support it. Sounds like every time I hear the statistics, the number gets a little more inflated. But the fact is 100% of Americans could support abortion. But if God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. So the, the world can cry, injustice! We have rights! All they want 
and they will. I'm sure your Facebook news feed looked as outraged as mine did this past weekend. I hope it does. If you're not seeing, if if you're seeing nothing but people celebrating this decision, then you need more non-Christian friends. But as Christians living in this increasingly hostile toward Christians world of ours, you and I must resolve to do what's right even when it's not popular. Even when our society deems it wrong and unjust. Number three, in Thessalonica now, the world turns order to chaos, exchanges reason for irrationality and good sense for senselessness. We're in chapter 17 now. Paul and Silas make their way to Thessalonica. And as usual, they head for the local synagogue because the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And so on three consecutive Sabbaths, we hear Paul. Notice the verbs here. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. What is Paul doing here? He's helping them make sense of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and all of its messianic prophecies in light of their fulfillment in Christ, in Jesus. It's making order, making sense of the world for these Jews who've been anticipating the Christ. I got asked to be part of a panel discussion last night hosted by a parachurch ministry called Rethink 315. They focus on preparing Christian teenagers for the work of apologetics, defending the faith, in an increasingly non-Christian world, providing students with reasons, with explanations, proofs of the truth of the Christian worldview. See, that's the thing. We all have a worldview, don't we? A way of viewing the world, making sense of the world. We are rational, meaning-making creatures because according to Scripture, our God is a God of order, not chaos. And we have been made in His image for order. But the problem is, that the world has been in this constant state of disorder, of chaos, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. God had created the world in a very orderly fashion in Genesis 1 and 2, but the whole thing went off the rails in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and invited chaos into the world. Lies replaced the truth. Ambition replaced obedience. Hiding replaced intimacy. Shame replaced innocence. Enmity replaced harmony. Pain replaced pleasure. Thorns replaced the garden. Death replaced life. Chaos replaced order. But amidst all of that chaos, before we were even evicted from the garden, God promised that one day he would send an offspring of the woman who would defeat sin and death and restore order to the world once and for all. And in Acts 17.3, Paul is saying he's here. It's Jesus. He is the answer, not just to the Old Testament prophecies you've been waiting on, but to all of your heart's deepest desires. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus. And so in verse 4, many of them do, especially the devout Greeks and the leading women. And what is the world's response? Verse 5, but the Jewish leaders were jealous. They didn't get this kind of reaction to their altar calls. 
Remember, it's all about the Benjamins. So if half their synagogue just left to start a church, that means half their budget went too. So they're jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, good idiomatic translation of the Greek there is lowlifes, taking a bunch of lowlifes, a bunch of riffraff, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, this Thessalonian Jew-turned-Christian who was hosting the missionaries, seeking to bring the missionaries out to the crowd. Chaos. Chaos. Even anarchy. Initially, they wanted to hand Paul and Silas not over to the local authorities, but to the crowd. But because they couldn't find them, thank God, verse 6, they take poor Jason instead, their host, and they drag him along with some of the brothers before the authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. These are the allegations of the mob who just turned the whole city upside down in an uproar. And they cried, Jason here, he received them, gave them refuge, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. They're right. The truth is, the world has been upside down ever since Genesis 3. So the, the, the mob is right here. Jesus did come to turn the world upside down. But because it was already upside down, he just turned it right side up. Restored order, God's order to the world. Caesar says, I rule over you as a slave. You're my slave. God says, I died for you to make you a son, a daughter. Caesar says, the strong dominate the weak. This is the way of the world. Survival of the fittest. God says, lay down your power like I did for you in order to serve one another in love. This is why Pilate laughed in Jesus' face when he claimed to be a king. Jesus said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. I'm not going to win the way that many of my followers even want me to. I didn't come kicking down the doors of your Roman palaces and temples, guns blazing, chaos, war. That's the way of the world. The upside-down kingdom of sin. No, Jesus said, I came with love. To conquer the kingdoms of this world with love. Self-sacrificial love. Not a sword, but the cross. And ultimately, Jesus is going to bring all of creation back under God's rightful rule. His orderly rule. What's the application for you and I today? So we don't, we don't have to look very far to see the diabolical fruit of the world's rebellion against God's created order, do we? Bad things happen when humans try and reject science, nature, biology, common sense, reason, in the name of personal autonomy, being a law, a God unto ourselves. But friends, you and I are not God. And that's good news. We didn't establish the order of the universe. And so rebelling against the one true God, His order leads to nothing but chaos in your life. But unfortunately, there are millions, millions of people today all around us who have bought into the world's lies and who are therefore living lives of utter confusion and chaos as a result. 
And our response is the church should not be judgment and condemnation. Scripture's clear. They've been blinded by the, the prince of this world, the powers of darkness. They know not what they do, Jesus said. Father, forgive them. No, our response should be like the response of Christ. Our hearts should break for them. Be deeply saddened by people so deluded and, and led astray by the world's lies. Our hearts should break for them like Christ. And like Paul, we should reason with them, but do it with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. To show them the truth and the beauty of God's good design. His, his order for them and for the world. Lastly, and quickly, number four, in Berea, verses 10 through 15 here, the world returns life with death. Paul and Silas escape Thessalonica by cover of night and arrive in Berea. And they head, you guessed it, for the synagogue. It's like they're gluttons for punishment, but this is the mission that God has called them to. Suffering for Christ's sake. And yet, not in Berea. Not initially, because we hear the good news. Verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What makes them noble? Literally, of an exalted moral or mental character or excellence, it is their humble submission to God's Word. The Word of life. The same way you and I. How do we rise above the enslavement, the injustice, the chaos, the death of this world swirling all around us? Paul gives us the answer in Philippians 2, 15 and 16. He says, Children of God will be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. How do we do it? By holding fast to the word of life. The word of life by receiving God's word, the scriptures, with all eagerness and examining them daily. This is the word of life, friends. And when we receive it personally and the gospel message that it declares, we receive life. Life to the fullest. Eternal life. Verse 12. Many of the Bereans believed and they received eternal life. But once again, that's not the end of the story because verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica heard about it, they made the 50-mile trek west to Berea from Thessalonica just to try a second time to stir up the crowds and put Paul to death. They won't give up. So hostile is the world to the life that Christ wants to offer us. What is the personal application for us today? I invite you to consider what are the worldly things that once promised you life that have brought you nothing but death instead. Maybe it's a party, lifestyle, you used to live, eat, drink, and be merry all night, every night. 
because tomorrow we may die. You know, Kesha was just plagiarizing Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, when she said, let's make the most of the night like we're going to die young. That was Paul. Paul said, look, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Kesha's right. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. We Christians, most of all, are to be pitied if we're living for this life alone. Living it for Jesus in a world that, where the strong dominate the weak. It's all about climbing to the top and how many people you need to step on to get there. You know, we'd be foolish to sacrifice ourselves, to lay down our lives for the sake of others. That's folly, unless it's true. Unless it's true. Unless Jesus is the Christ. Friends, it is true. Every word of God proves true. And God's word is life. Maybe this morning... It was a Deuteronomy 30, 19 kind of moment for someone here. When after delivering his law through Moses to his people, God declares, See, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. Friends, Jesus could not be more clear. It's God, or uh, sorry, it's the world or me you got to choose. You can't have both. Why would you want both? Isn't the choice obvious? The world makes slavery out of your so-called freedom, personal autonomy. The world makes, turns evil out of good, chaos out of order, death out of life. But friends, Jesus does the exact opposite for us. While we were enslaved to sin, Jesus set us free to live for Him and gave us life to the fullest. Jesus is righting all of the world's wrongs. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He alone can bring order out of all your chaos, beauty from ashes. He alone can take the broken pieces that you've made of your life and put them back to, together in a way that is somehow, inexplicably, even more glorious than it would have been had you not screwed it all up in the first place. Redemption. Only Jesus can do that. And most importantly, only Jesus can offer you life. Can turn death into life, eternal life. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Will you receive him today?